Good evening and welcome to the Revere Radio Network, the worldwide home of free speech. My name is Chris. This show is called Nowhere to Run. This is a special edition, so I'm not sure if it's going to air on Revere or not, but it very well may. The I do think this is going to be one of the more important shows as far as content goes because it's such a amazing and true issue. It's something that Christians don't understand and it's something that non-christians don't understand it is like many of the things we do here right in the middle it's something that it's a paradigm shifter for both sides if it's true and i think that you'll find that it it's it is true and it's been there the whole time it explains so much of the Old and New Testament that before was something that we had to allegorize or shift around or make different words mean this different things just to fit this into our concept of what it should be. But you'll find here in just a second that there's no need for that. It's, it's so based solidly in Scripture. And it's one, probably going to be one of the most scripturally based shows I've ever done. So I know a lot of you are like, oh great, what new conspiracy theory is Chris going to turn the Bible into now and on the other side this same concept is used by the detractors of the Bible and the New Age people and the Jordan Maxwell's and Zachariah Sitchins and Mike Tessarians as the main fuel the nail in the coffin as they like to think of it I think and they they use this concept as the proof that God was, in fact, aliens. And the concept I'm talking about here is the divine council. We're about to go into something that I think is going to fascinate a lot of you and hopefully make you think. You may want to get something out to take some notes if you're so inclined to do that kind of thing. I will provide links in the show notes section of the websites which are nowhere to run .com or conspiracyclosed.com slash nowhere to run. There should be show notes provided for the material gone over here that you can check it out for yourself. I will be reading this almost directly from this page that I'll link on the show notes. And I know that sometimes when I read things, it has a tendency to be boring, so I'm going to try to make it as uh, not boring as possible. With Michael Heiser, sometimes his writings are so technical that they tend to like blind you with science, and you're like snoring because it's just so uh, technical. But even though the content is just mind-blowing, but he actually does an extremely good literary job in presenting this case. And again, this is not something, as you'll find here, that we don't have to second-guess. We don't have to take his word for it. Even though it is very technical, none of it is something that you can't find out very easily for yourself, and it's very logical, and you'll see what I mean here in just a second. So, let's begin. Introduction to the Divine Council, Michael S. Heiser, Ph.D. This is from Chapter 3. To this point, we've learned that even before the very beginning of creation, God was not alone. And there was a second uncreated person with him, who shared his own essence and was an independent but not autonomous being. As Christians, we are familiar with the second person by such terms as the Son, and we believe that this second deity person became incarnated as Jesus of Nazareth. In the Old Testament, the Son is manifested physically and visually, but is referred to by other names, such as wisdom and the Word. 
There are several there are several other names taken by the Son in the Old Testament, and we'll get to them. For now, though, we need to look at the other members of God's family and their relationship to the Son. So we're not quite at the divine council yet, but he makes an interesting point here that Jesus was there with God from the beginning. Is there a scriptural basis to attest to that? Yes, there is a lot of it. And, and since he doesn't really go into that here, I'm going to go into that for you just to, to give that foundation for us. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrath, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee he shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. That's, that's something. It's, saying, it's a prophecy in the Old Testament saying that out of Bethlehem shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. That's saying something about Jesus Christ that's, that's pretty interesting, that his going forth has been from old, from everlasting. So even at this prophecy in the Old Testament, Micah, he was already around. But, you know, let's continue. There's so much information on this. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is capitalized in your Bibles, and it says, and it says the word what uh, in the beginning was the word and the word and the word was with god and the word was god the same was in the beginning with god okay so this word was in the beginning with god how who is this word well it explains that in uh, verse 14 it says and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten the monogenesis of the Father, uh, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he whom I spake, that he that cometh after me is uh, preferred before me, and he, he was before me. So I think that we're getting a clear picture that the word capitalized was none other than Jesus Christ, and it is explained uh, very clearly here. The definition is given here, so we know who is being spoken of. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Well, is there more? Yes, there is a lot more. John chapter 8, verses 58. Jesus said, and this is when Jesus, and we'll just read from 57, it says, Then the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and have seen, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now that is quite a claim for a Jewish guy to be making. So he is saying, Jesus himself out of his own mouth is saying, Before Abraham was, I am. Now that means he's got some history. So let's continue. John 17, reading from verse 4. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The, let me read that again. With the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Because we're starting to paint a picture that Jesus and God were with one another. They were both together. They were before the world was, they were the creators. They were, the Son was begotten. The monogenesis is 
begotten, which is different from created. It's, it's something that the, what we're going to be talking about here, and it explains well that the divine council is not. The divine council is not Jesus and Yahweh. They are with each other. They are, let me let my, Michael Heiser explain that a little later, but let's just continue in this train of thought here and in i guess it's john 20 john 17 24 it says father i will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where i am that they that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world so god was loving jesus before the foundation of the world Again, we're getting a major picture here of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Okay, continuing in uh, Revelations 22, verses 13, where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Okay, so I hope that explained a little bit of, uh, gave a little bit of background, and I think we're on the same page there. There is more of that. Um, a majority of those were from the New Testament, but some of them were from the Old Testament. We'll be going through a lot of the Old Testament stuff here in a second, so I think you will um, get an idea of that here in just a second. So continuing with Michael Eiser's uh, writing here, I'll just continue from the, from start a little bit from where I was. There are several other names taken by the Son in the Old Testament, and we'll get to them. For now, though, we need to look at the other members of God's family and their relationship to the Son. I put the Son in quotation marks and used capitalization in the above paragraph to draw your attention. God's co-ruler and co-creator, the second deity person we think of as the Son, since we are living after the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of that person. It is qualitatively different than God's other sons. That will be made clear as we progress. Even if you just ask yourself, what, what other sons? You're tracking, and you wouldn't be alone. God's other sons are the focus of this chapter and the next. What we'll discuss here and in the next chapter is one of the most neglected, misunderstood, sidestepped, and critical doctrinal areas in the Old Testament and, in fact, is the backdrop for most of the New Testament theology. I don't make that last assertion lightly. I am not saying that without an understanding of this issue you can't comprehend the Bible. I am saying that without it you can't comprehend it precisely or fully or even well. You will inevitably miss out on some of the context for much of what goes on in the New Testament, a context understood and utilized by the apostles at every turn, Remember back in the introduction when I talked about how the church had been missing the ancient context for its theology for millennia? Have we lost that ancient the have we lost the ancient Israelite and the first century lenses for understanding what's going on in the Bible? Well, if the first two chapters haven't demonstrated that for you, the next will. The next few will. Read prayerfully and closely, because you'll never look at the Bible the same way again once you meet God's original heavenly family the sons of God. We'll start our introduction with an obscure but important passage. Job 38, verses 4 through 7. God is challenging Job, who wanted to know why he was suffering. God's general answer in Job 38 and 42, 38, 42, is that he doesn't need to explain himself because he's God. Part of that response reads, Starting at verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations? 
of the earth. Speak if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Surely you know. Who has measured it with a line? Or what were it, on what were its bases sunk? Who set its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. There's a lot to be said about this passage. Firstly, you will probably notice that God is basically asking Job, sarcastically, where Job was when God created the earth. God refers to the time when he laid earth's foundations, fixed and measured its dimensions, sank its bases, and set its cornerstone. Second, you also no doubt notice the underlined portion. We learn from the text that at the very moment of earth's creation, there were already a number of, quote, sons of God. These sons of God shouted for joy when they saw God's creative power and handiwork. You might be thinking that the sons of God are angels. This is a common assumption, but it's wrong. Since the Hebrew word for angels is malachim, a completely different and is completely different than the Hebrew behind sons of God. More on that below. Third, you may have discerned that the two lines of verse 7 parallel each other. That is, the sons of God who shout for joy are also identified as morning stars who sang together. Such parallelism is a major feature of Hebrew poetry. One line renames or repeats another. I won't lapse into another lecture on Hebrew poetry, just make a mental note of that parallel that the sons of God are identified with the heavenly starry hosts. For you listening, I'll read that again just so you get an idea. And it says, Or what were its bases, uh, on what were its bases sunk? Who set its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy? Okay, continuingly, continuing, it says, The passage raises some questions. Maybe you're wondering if we can be sure that God's description really does refer to the creation of the earth. I'm going to keep my promise to save all that data uh, that proves that for, the, for an appendix. By the way, just one proof for now, though. You should know that the Hebrew word in Job for laying the foundations are the same words used in other verses that undoubtedly refer back to the creation of the earth. See Psalms 102, verse 25, Hebrew 26, uh, Psalms 104, verse 5, Proverbs 8, verse 29, Isaiah 48, verse 13, Isaiah 51, verse 13, and 16. One verse in that list should jump out at you right away. Proverbs 8:29. That's the passage we read in chapter 1, where wisdom, capital wisdom, claimed to be at God's side, serving as his assistant in creation. This is a clear biblical testimony that the sons of God who watched uh, the show were watching God and his co-creator in action. They were all there before there were human beings. Why would I emphasize that last line when it seems so painfully obvious? Because many Christian pastors and professors teach that the phrase sons of God refers to humans. Granted, they do not make... Uh, granted they do not make that mistake in this passage the supernatural character of the sons of God is irrefutable in Job 38 since humans were not yet created however in other passages it is argued that not by not a few that the quote sons of God refer to human beings the reason for this misguided conclusion requires a bit of background in the original Hebrew the phrase quote the sons of God in Job 38 7 is B'nai Elohim, 
you might recognize Elohim as one of God's names. In fact, it is the most common name for Israel's God, despite the fact that its shape or spelling is plural. Yes, you read that correctly, plural. Hebrew actually has two generic words for God or, or uh, any other foreign God. The most common is El, the other is Eloha. In English, we normally make the words plural by adding S or S's to words like rats or horses. In Hebrew, plurals of the masculine nouns end with im, and God is always described with masculine pronouns. In the Bible, he or him is uh, the word Elohim. In plural, the plural of Eloha. The plural of El is Elim. This probably helps if you're looking at that. Try not to stray off uh, with me uh, here, but just try to conceptualize what I'm saying. The above discussion means that the word Elohim, all by itself, can refer to either God, capitalized, the God of Israel, or gods, small g, other divine beings. We have to wait for the word to be put into a sentence to know which meaning is the focus. We have words like this in English. For example, the word sheep can either refer to singular or plural, but by itself we cannot tell which option is correct. If we put sheep into a sentence, the sheep is lost, we know that only one sheep is meant since the verb is requires its subject to be singular. Likewise, the sheep are lost informs us that more than one sheep is in view. Are you with me here? That, that, that's pretty easy to, uh, to, uh, to get there, I think. That Elohim has to wait for the sentence to determine its plurality or singularity. Over 2,000 occurrences of the word Elohim in Hebrew texts of the Old Testament point to the singular God of Israel. We know this because of the grammar of the sentences in which the word occurs, as well as the context. Job 38.4 obviously refers to the God of Israel, since the grammar there has the creator, being, uh, the creator speaking in the first person, singular, I laid the foundations of the earth. At other times, God is referred to as Ha-Elohim, with the Hebrew definition, uh, definitive article, the word for the, is in front of Elohim. It was written um, this way to, sig single, to signal that God of Israel was the God, par excellence, among all other gods. The grammar and context of any particular occurrence helps the reader make the decision about what to do with Elohim. It shouldn't be surprising that since God can be referred to as Elohim and Ha-Elohim, the Hebrew Old Testament attaches the phrase the sons of to both forms of God's name. At times, the Hebrew text refers to the sons of God as B'nai Elohim. At other times, it's B'nai Ha Elohim. There is no difference in meaning. In the same manner, the Hebrew text occasionally reads B'nai Elohim with the meaning sons of God. Though plural in shape, Elim refers to the singular God in that phrase just like Elohim does. One verse, see Psalm 82 verse 6 below, uses the phrase B'nai Elon, sons of the Most High, since Elon is yet another name for God. The thought might have occurred to you that when the Hebrew writers referred to the God of Israel, the God par excellence or Most High, greater and more exalted than all others, that this implies more than one God.
If that question has crept into your mind, kudos to you. You'd be correct. At that, And that brings us to the reason why so many evangelical scholars and pastors want the sons of God to be human beings in certain passages. They think that having heavenly sons of God in certain passages puts poly polytheism in the Bible. This uneasiness is felt especially acutely in Psalms 82, since Psalms 82 verse 1 and 82 verse 6 uh, identify the sons of God as plural Elohim gods. But that is the literal and most straightforward understanding of the text. What opponents of the obvious meaning of the text miss is that the presence of more than one God in the Bible does not mean polytheism, as we commonly use the word. If these last two sentences sound way out, stay with me. Let's take a look at Psalms 82. Note my insertions of the Hebrew and grammatical terms and the underlines. This is a very, very interesting passage when you look at what, what versions are used as singular and what versions are used as plural. A whole new meaning of this comes for both Christians and uh, detractors. And here we go. A Psalm of Aspah. Aspah. Um, I don't know how I'm going to read this to tell you which ones are singular and plural. It, I'll just say it. God, Elohim, stands in, in the divine council, literally council of El. Among the gods, Elohim, he pronounces judgment. How long will you, plural, judge unjustly, showing favor to the wicked? Judge the wretched and the orphan, vindicate the lowly and the poor, Rescue the wretched and the needy. Save them from the hand of the wicked. They neither know nor understand. They go about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth totter. I said, you, plural, gods, Elohim, sons of the Most High, B'nai Elan, of you, plural, but you, plural, shall die as men do. Fall like any prince. Arise, the command here is singular, very interestingly, O God, Elohim, Judge, the command is singular, the earth, judge the earth, for you, singular, shall inherit all nations. Okay, let me read this again, but let me just tell you uh, in context what, what uh, is being read here. The first bit, God, who is presiding over other gods, is, is getting mad at them for judging unjustly. And at the end, he's saying, arise, you singular, God, to judge the earth uh, by itself. So let me read it without all those interjections and see what kind of picture you paint in your head. God stands in the divine council uh, among the gods. He pronounces judgment. How long will you judge unjustly, showing favor to the wicked? Judge the wretched and the orphan, vindicate the lowly and the poor, rescue the wretched and the needy, save them from the hand of the wicked. They neither know nor understand, they go about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth totter. I said, you gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, but you, die as men do, fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations." Okay, let's see what Michael Heiser has to say about that. I think some of you are probably catching on to what that could mean. Despite the fact that it makes people uncomfortable, the text means what it says. In Psalm 82, verse 1, the first Elohim must be singular. Since the Hebrew grammar has the word as the subject of the singular verb, the second Elohim must be plural since the preposition in front of it, in the midst of, requires more than one. You can't be in the midst of one person. 
And according to Psalms 82.1, the singular God, Elohim, of Israel presides over the assembly or council of other gods, Elohim. Verse 6 makes it perfectly clear that these other Elohim are the sons of the God of Israel. In that verse, God himself is speaking. I said to the other Elohim of the divine council, and he addresses them with the plural you, the plural you. He says point blank, you are gods, all of you. The fact that he is speak God's Elohim, by the way, the fact that he is speaking to a group of plural Elohim is made certain even in the English, since God also calls them sons of the Most High. I made the observation above in the he, uh, above that the Hebrew word for angels is malachim, literally messengers, an entirely different term than, that occurs for sons of God. If one still insists against the inspired textual evidence that the two should be identified, you still need to explain why angels are called gods in light of Psalm 82, 6. It's a very interesting point. Some who object to the obvious meaning of the text may assert that the psalm is actually describing God the Father speaking to other members of the Trinity. This view results in heresy here in some very obvious ways. First, not all of the members of the Trinity are sons. The Holy Spirit is not the Son of God or a Son of God. Secondly, in the passage, if the passage, passage has the Trinity in mind, then God is charging them with corruption. Verses 2 and 5 are quite clear that God is displeased with these other Elohim in, this, in his council and has indicted them for their wicked rule. Third, this view would also have the Trinity sentenced to death. They would die like mortals, as men do. This can't refer to the death of Christ for three reasons. The death sentence isn't restricted to just one son of God. B, the death sentence is for personal guilt and corruption. C, the son, note the capitalization, who is God's own essence and uncreated, is superior to other sons of God. More on that in a moment. Fourth, it is evidence that the last verse is the the it, fourth, it is evident from the last verse that the judgment of the sons of God, these other Elohim, has something to do with God's reclamation of the nations of the earth. The implication is that the sons of God have been ruling the earth and doing it wickedly, and so that they must be removed for God's rule to come to full fruition. In other words, they are an impediment or a nuisance or at best a disappointment, certainly not the way we'd want to look at the Trinity. But, what about the view that the Elohim upon whom God has placed the death sentence are human rulers? This too is incoherent. Ask yourself some questions of the text. What is the scriptural basis for the idea that God presides over a council of humans that governs the nations of the earth? Some commentators who reject the face value meaning of Psalms 82 like to argue that Israel's council of 70 elders is in view here that God is judging Israel's judges or elders for their corruption. This makes little sense since at no time in the scriptures did Israel's elders ever have jurisdiction over all the nations of the earth. In fact, we shall see in the next chapter the situation is exactly opposite. Israel was separated from the nations uh, to be God's own possession and focus of his rule. Moreover, since when do the corrupt decisions of a group of humans make the foundations of the earth totter? L lastly, if these Elohim are humans, why are they sentenced to die like humans? 
this is nonsensical and it is defeated by the grammar and structure of the hebrew text it would be akin to sentencing a child to grow up or a dog to bark or a human being to breathe the point of verse 6 is that in response to the corruption of the elohim they will be stripped of their immortality at god's discretion and die like humans die a clear contrast is set up in the text the real problem with the human view though is twofold the view cannot be reconciled with, one, other references in the Hebrew Old Testament that refer to the divine council and other Elohim, other pa and two, other passages in the Hebrew Bible speak of an act of God to divide the nations of the earth among the sons of God as a punishment for the rebellion before there was a nation of Israel. Once you understand the text we'll examine below, Psalms 82 becomes completely coherent and frankly brings most of the entire entirety of the Old Testament into proper focus. For the remainder of this chapter, we'll focus on the first issue, references to a heavenly council that make it clear that the council of Psalm 82 is compromised of God's uh, uh, compromised of God and other supernatural beings. We'll tackle the council We'll tackle council functions and related concepts in the chapters that follow. There are several other places in the Hebrew Bible that speak of the plural Elohim and the heavenly council. Perhaps the most familiar passage where the sons of God show up are the first two chapters of Job. Job 1, verses 1. I'm going to skip a little bit. He quotes a lot of these passages, and it's probably for good reason, but I'll skip in the interest of time. It says in verse 6, and it came to pass, when the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord, Satan came along with them. The Lord said unto Satan, Where have you been? Satan answered, I have been roaming uh, all over the earth. The Lord said unto Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? And in Job 2, verses 1, it says, Once again the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord. Satan came along with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said unto Satan, Where have you been? Satan answered unto the Lord, I have been roaming all over the earth. Um, so, let's see, skipping down, it says, In both passages, he, the Hebrew phrase translated, The sons of God, is B'nai Ha Elohim. Although I have the familiar Satan in this passage, the Hebrew word here is, the Hebrew word here, Satan, is best translated, The Adversary, since it has a definitive article prefixed to it. Ha Satan. Hebrew does not prefix proper names with the article, and neither does English. I am not the Mike. In the inter intertestamental period and the New Testament era, Satan became a proper name for God's archenemy. Um, the word as used here actually refers to a being who exercises a prosecutorial function one who accuses or indicts another person. In the ancient Near East, to which the Old Testament culturally belongs, this was a specific role within the divine council. See Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 7, for perhaps the classic passage on this function. Well, let's check out Zechariah 3, verse 1 through 7, to see if uh, that jives. This is a very interesting passage, and I think it's always good when you see Joshua to thank Jesus, not just because it means Jesus in the Greek, but it's very clearly a representation of Jesus. The book of Joshua is, as well as the usage of Joshua as an archetype, and, and just just keep that in mind as we read here. And I think that Iser's pointing to this as showing Satan as kind of like a 
prosecutor at the Divine Council. Like, that's his some sort of role, I think, if I'm not misunderstanding him. Let me just read what this says. This is a pretty little long passage. Stay with me here. And it says in uh, Zechariah 3, verse 1, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. It is not this is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Joshua having been Jesus and took on the sin of the world. Let's just keep that in mind, I think. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will close thee with a change of, of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair, a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord stood by. I think we are, I don't know if we're talking about Satan here or not, but it's interesting. The next line it says, And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, and then shalt also judge my house, and shall also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk, um, among these that stand by, I could be totally wrong here, but that sounds a lot like the temptation of Jesus in the New Testament when he is offering him the whole world uh, if he would just fall down and worship him. Here now, O Joshua, the high... And this is not the angel speaking, I don't think here. It says in verse 8, it says, Here now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee are... For they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth... Yeah, this is God speaking here. For, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of the land and in, in one day. And in that day shall the Lord of hosts shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Okay. Well, that was a detour there, but let's get right back into this. It says, the picture here is that the Divine Council is a meeting for business, and that the adversary has a role in that meeting. The Hebrew text is ambiguous as to whether he is a member of the Council or one of the sons of God. He may simply be an officer of the Council at its meetings. One encounters the sons of God, B'nai Ha-Elohim, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, in the Dead Sea Scrolls material, see the next chapter for this passage. And Genesis 6, verse 1 through 4, as we're well aware of here in this show, and I, and I also have to correct because I think many times I've said that the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, was referring to angels, but obviously that that is coming into question here, and this is consider this a potential correction. Before moving on, take note of how the human... Uh, take now note of how the human view of the sons of God fails hopelessly here. There is simply no way that the sons of God could be human beings in Job 1 and 2. The encounters, one encounters the sons of God in this slightly variant spelling, B'nai Elim, in two biblical passages in Psalm 29, verse 1, a verse that has suffered greatly at the hands of translators. The other Elohim are commanded to worship Yahweh. I think this is incredibly important. 
It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of God. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. It is quite clear from the text that Yahweh is to be worshipped by other Elohim, not the other way around. The God of Israel is qualitatively superior. Psalms 89 uh, verses 5 through 7 echoes the same thought and specifically references the divine counsel. It says, Let the heavens praise you, your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can equal the Lord? Who can compare with the Lord among the sons of God? A God greatly dreaded in the counsel of the holy ones, held in awe by all around him. I naturally underlined the phrases sons of God and obvious references to the divine counsel to draw your attention to their existence in the biblical text. But I underlined in the skies and all around him. The reason is to emphasize that these sons of God are in heaven and around God's throne. They are not a human council of judges. Once again, the human viewpoint is completely inadequate. Perhaps the most striking scene of the divine council is found in 1 Kings 22. In that passage, the reader is privy to an actual council meeting concerning the evil king Ahab. I reproduced the whole chapter here in RSV for context. Note the underlined portions. And he does indeed list the whole chapter here. And for interest of time, we're just going to read the interesting part. This is basically to give the context. All the prophets of God were... Or, or, excuse me, the, the prophets of this king in Israel were saying, Hey, yes, go to war, go to war, it's all good. And all the prophets are saying it. And then, then he said, Is that all the prophets? And they said, Well, there's one, there's this Micah, but I hate him because, you know, he never says anything that I like. And they go to Micah, and he basically says what we're about to read. It says, The king of Israel said to Josephat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy anything favorable about me, but only disaster? Then Micah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing beside him, to the right and to the left of him. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab so that he may go up to the uh, and fall at, at Ramoth-Gilead? Then one, said, then one said one thing, and another said another, until a spirit came a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. How, the Lord asked him. He replied, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then the Lord said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do it. So you see the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, uh, of all these your prophets, and the Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Chenah, <laughs> came up to Micah, slapped him on the cheek, and said, which which way did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? And Micah replied, "You will find out on that day when I go when you go and to hide in the inner chamber." The king of Israel then ordered, "Take Micah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Josa, the king's son, and say, Thus say the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him." On the reduced rations of bread and water until I come in peace, Micah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken to me. And he said, Here, you peoples, all of you. Note from this remarkable vision of the true prophet of Yahweh that the deliberative assembly is once again in the presence of God. There is no possibility that this is a human council. There are other references to the corrupt gods of the nations and not idols outside the intermediate divine council context, they affirm that other gods were part of the worldview of Israel in the Hebrew Bible. 
The first list below contains passages where the word Elohim and Ha-Elohim in the Hebrew text uh, where you read gods. The second list has verses where the Hebrew word is Elim. This is times when the plural Elohim or Ha-Elohim is used in the place of the word gods. Psalms 86, 8. And among the gods there is none like you, O Yahweh, neither are there any works like your works. Psalms 95, 3. For Yahweh is a great God and a king above all gods. Uh, Psalm 96, verse 4. For Yahweh is great and deserving of exceedingly great praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 97, 7. All who served images were put to shame. Those who boasted in mere idols, even all the gods bowed down before him. All the gods bowed down before him. 97, Psalm 97, verse 9. For you, O Yahweh, are the most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that Yahweh is great and that the Lord is above all gods. Psalm 136, verse 2. Give, o, give thanks to God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 138, verse 1. I will praise you. Um, with my whole heart before the gods will I sing praise to you. The plural Elim, Exodus 15:11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? Psalm 58, verse 1. Do you indeed decree what is right, O gods? Do you judge people fairly? It is common for those who resist the face value meaning of the text of Psalm 82, verse 1, and six, to argue that this point, that such references to other gods are actually references to idols, or that they are figurative expressions. The Israelites didn't really even believe be such beings exist. The first objection is discussed in detail in the next chapter. For now, take another look at Psalm 97, verse 7. and the above list, it clearly distinguishes the god from idols. The psalmist mocks people who bow down to idols, and adds, even the gods who the idols represent don't bow down to Yahweh. The second objection is addressed here. Those who want to argue that these references to other gods cannot be taken as reflecting what the Israelites really believed, don't realize that that objection does injustice to both the biblical text and the God of Israel. What I mean here is that if the above verses are not conveying factual information relative to biblical theology, then God's superiority is a, is a mockery. For example, if Moses is comparing Yahweh to beings that don't exist, how is Yahweh glorified? To have Moses really saying, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the beings that aren't real? It is to judge God's greatness by nothing. We're, we're greater than something that doesn't exist? So is a microbe. The view, un the view unintentionally brings God's uh, brings God down quite a few notches, to say nothing of the deception involved in Moses' part. And even God, since he inspired the words, saying, Among the beings that we know, uh, among the beings that we all know don't exist, there is none like Yahweh. Is, tan is tantamount to comparing Yahweh with Mickey Mouse or Spider Man or some fictional literary figure? This reduces praise to a snicker. It also makes the writer somewhat mentally unbalanced. He sings Yahweh's praise uh, before beings he really believes aren't there. He commands the same imagery, beings, uh, he commands the same 
imaginary beings to worship Yahweh in Psalm 29, verse 1. Worse yet, Yahweh presides over a council of beings that don't exist. Why would the Holy Spirit inspire such nonsense? More substantive is the fact that those who don't want to take the text for what it says in such verses fear that they might be affirming polytheism as part of the belief system of the biblical writers. This is a concern only in that we use the word monotheism in a particular in a particular way that means the belief that no other gods exist as opposed to the belief that there is only one unique god polytheistic religion typically has have a group of gods who fight and scheme against one another for power and sometimes leadership of the lead god in charge can and does change in such religions these systems also universally assume that the gods can be identified with parts of the creation and that the least subset of the pantheon is basically equal in power to the ability uh, in, in power and ability or they have powers and abilities that offset the powers and abilities of the other top tier gods other terms relevant to this question are also flawed such as henotheism the belief that in the belief in one superior god among other gods and mono, monolatry, monolatry, the belief that you should worship only one god though others exist. These terms are deficient and they do not sufficiently describe what the biblical writers believed. Henotheistic systems can have the lead god toppled and replaced by other gods who then become superior. One wonders uh, on what grounds since just prior to, uh, to that the god was inferior. Monolatry fails to articulate why one god is superior and, and what criteria make him superior. It comments only on worship. Israel's faith cannot be adequately understood by any of the terms above as we understand them today. The faith described in the Hebrew Bible is one that has one single species unique deity who created other lesser deities to rule under his authority. By definition, they are qualitatively inferior since they are created beings. The God of Israel alone is the creator of all that is, the lone sovereign, the only uncreated being, the only omnipotent and omniscient being that there is, and thus the single legitimate object of our worship. Our world cannot be sufficient to capture all of this, but the Hebrew Old Testament makes this understanding abundantly clear. To say that a devouring council of plural Elohim means polytheism requires ignoring Israel's description of its God and other gods. The species uniqueness of Yahweh also answers the question of how the co-creating and co-ruling son is different than the other sons of God. God's special agent, the word or wisdom, is unique in that he is Yahweh's own uncreated essence. This second Yahweh is repeatedly identified with the Son, Jesus, in the New Testament, since he became incarnate through as Jesus of Nazareth. This explains why Jesus is described in the New Testament as monogenesis, a Greek term typically and poorly translated only begotten. You no doubt recall from an earlier chapter that there is a difference between created and begotten. I didn't get into the Greek terminology there, but it is helpful here. Only begotten is, a, is an unfortunately confusing translation, especially for modern readers. It does sound 
to us as though the only begotten Son had a beginning because we aren't used to the Old English word. The confusion should never have happened. Though, since monogenesis actually doesn't mean only begotten, the controversy uh, extends from an old misunderstanding of the root of the Greek word. For many years, monogenesis was thought to have derived from two Greek terms, monos, only, and geneo, to beget or bear. Scholars of Greek linguistics have discovered, though, that the second part of the word, monogenesis, does not come from the Greek word geneo, but rather from the noun gneos, class or kind. The term literally means one of a kind, or unique, with no connotation of time or origin. The validity of this understanding is borne out by the New Testament itself. In Hebrews 11, verses 17, Isaac, Isaac is called Abraham's monogenesis. But it is crystal clear from the Old Testament that Isaac was not the only son of Abraham had begotten, since he had also fathered Ishmael prior to Isaac. The term must mean that Isaac was Abraham's unique son, for he was the son of the covenant promises and the line through which the Messiah would come. Many of the more recent versions of the Bible have adopted to translate monogenesis as only, but this confuses readers when they come across references to other sons of God in the Old Testament. The end result of all this is that the Hebrew Old Testament teaches Israel's God was utterly unique, not just in terms of ability, but also in the essence of lone, pre-existent, uncreated being. The God of Israel had a co-ruler and a co-creator who was his own unique essence, manifested as a second person. This second person went by many names, two of which, capital Word and capital W Wisdom, we have already discussed and, and was viewed by the New Testament writers as being incarnate in Jesus. The other sons of God can make no such claims. They are of another species and thus by definition beneath the Father and Son. They serve Yahweh and His co-sovereign in the divine council and accept their punishments for disobedience. The essence and status of the Father and Son will never and can never change. They will not be displaced or usurped as polytheism and, and, henoth and henothesium allow because they are unmatched and unmatchable in essence and power. There is only one Yahweh and His co-regent the Son is Him. And, exp and explosive, as explosive as this chapter is, it only prepares us for what is to come. The Divine Council shows up in other quite unexpected places, some of the most important passages of the Bible. Their story is at the heart of the original intention for humanity, the fall, uh, the, fall the story of Israel and the nations, the ancient plan for redemption of humanity. We only lose the scales of tradition that have covered out our eyes, your journey, and the worlds that patriarchs and prophets have just begun. Well, um, I guess that's going to sum up that stuff. I got I was doing this study by looking into some of Zachariah Sitchin's claims, and I plan on doing something um, with that pretty soon. I know it seems like I've been just singling out people a lot lately or something like that, but it's not been my attention. It's just... It's just once you start to see the the problems, it just it almost becomes um, necessary to to start calling it out. You know, um, I hope that people are going to catch on to this and they can start calling this stuff when they see it too. I mean, I think that I think that everybody, you know, a lot of people are catching on to this and can 
start putting on the glasses, if you will. But I will uh, leave you with the idea that this is the plural Elohim, the council of God, is used extensively in understanding, I think, revelations and all the stuff that was going on there and is going on. Uh, it also is, like I said earlier, it's the thing being used by the other side to prove the what I think is going to be this massive deception that that aliens were, in fact, our creators. They genetically seeded us, and they'll be able to point to the points in the Bible where it says that we will do this and we will do that as Elohim. And just just think about that logically when you hear that next time. If... The, just by using the, the plural form, does that mean that it's aliens? Or does it mean that it's polytheism? Because in all those passages, it's clear God's saying, I'm going to do it. You guys are just here. You know, I'm the one doing all the work. You guys are just here, you know. And it doesn't mean that, that uh, I think we, we covered a lot of that. But it's really important because so much of the New Ageisms are based around a misunderstanding of this divine counsel. And as I said also, you know, I need to correct a lot of what I've said in the show because I've always I've said so authoritatively so many times in the show that Benai Ha Elohim and um, Benai Elohim mean angels when apparently we're looking at something different. These are, you can, again, maybe they should be categorized as a different type of angel or something, but um, definitely a different word is used for messengers angels and then the uh, these sons of God so I hope that this was informative and I'm going to try to get back on track and do some um, interesting stuff here in a little bit and I thank everybody uh, for your prayers that's how you support this show you can pray for me I'm sure that I need it in whatever way you can think of but certainly to keep from giving out disinformation and I thank you for your uh, prayers and I if you want to email me, you can do so at chris at conspiracyclothes.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at conspiracyclothes.com. And the website is nowheretorun.podomatic.com or conspiracyclothes.com slash nowheretorun. Okay, thanks for everything, and we'll see you next week.